welcome, welcome to our Sunday morning uh, adult Bible class. Bishop Myers is out of town, and I am filling in for him this morning, so we welcome you. Amen. Why don't we just begin this morning in prayer? What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're so glad to be in your house today. Thankful for your spirit, for your word, for your church. Thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to be with our brothers and sisters and to just exalt you in this day. Thank you for another day to worship you and to magnify your name. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. I want to call your attention this morning to one verse of study in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. We're looking at Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. I'd like to read uh, one scripture there describing the New Testament church. And it simply says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I'd like to talk to you this morning on that subject in the next few minutes that we have together. Simply great power. Then looking at the New Testament church and seeing that they had great joy. and Even this verse says that they had great grace. And uh, we also know that uh, great fear came upon the church. And uh, we know that there was uh, great faith that they had, uh, as we see demonstrated over and over again. And this verse lets us know that, that they had great power, power to witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Exactly what was that? They had not resurrected, but they had great power to witness the resurrection of the Lord Jesus or to be proclaimers of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Of course, the uniqueness of the Christian message, especially with the apostolic fathers and the post-apostolic fathers, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was really the, the linchpin in the Christian message that went forth and that was, of course, unique to what the Jewish people especially were getting from the Sanhedrin, from the uh, temple, that this Jesus had risen from the dead. And they had great power to witness the resurrection or to proclaim it. So I'd like to sort of look at that this morning and see exactly what this great power was. I start out this morning by referring you back to a book that we read in our Purpose Institute class. Um, I think it's probably been two or three years ago now. And a book that was a part of our curriculum was a book that was called Good to Great. It was a book that was written by Jim Collins and a group of 21 researchers, graduate students from Stanford and Harvard, some of the best universities in our country. What they attempted to do in this book was to try to figure out what made companies go from being good companies to being great companies. They studied over 1,500 companies and they whittled it down. The criteria that they were trying to match was they wanted a company that had outpaced and had beaten their competitors by 300% and had been able to sustain that growth for a 15-year period of time. So they were able to whittle down 1,500 companies in America uh, down to 11 companies that they studied. And these 11 companies had beat their competitors by 300% and were able to sustain that growth trajectory for a 15-year period of time. And then what they did was try to find the common denominators in what these 11 companies were doing. And they found these principles, and of course from these principles it's become the Bible for business building in terms of how do you grow a great company. 
And as they begin to study these 11 companies, they came up with these principles of what makes a company go from good to great. What was interesting to me as I read this book was that a lot of these principles, I think, can be extracted and applied to our own individual lives. What makes us go from being a good Christian to a great Christian? What causes us to go from being a good husband to a great husband or a good parent to a great parent? What causes us to be able to go from being a good employee to a great employee? And the principles that they took from this book were something that I think is applicable to every area of our life. One of the things that the researchers made note of, and they studied these companies over a period of five years, 6,000 articles, over 2,000 interviews, and they went through all of this very exhaustive research. And one of the things that the researchers came up with, they, they made note of something that they coined a phrase, dogs that did not bark. Dogs that did not bark. And they took this from an old Sherlock Holmes classic called The Adventure of Silver Blaze. And in that tale, of course, you know, these uh, stories of Sherlock Holmes were very popular stories. Well, in this particular uh, fictional account, Holmes made note when he was trying to solve a crime that the dog did not bark in the night, which was a key clue. In this story, the fact that the dog did not bark meant that the prime suspect must have been someone who knew the dog well. So in this story, they said, you know, the dog didn't bark, and that's a clue because the dog knew the individual or the individual knew the dog. Well, the researchers took that and they coined that phrase, dogs that did not bark. And in this study, what they didn't find, dogs that might have been expected to bark but didn't, turned out to be some of their best clues. Sometimes what you do not find is just as important as what you do find. That's why serving God is not so much what you do as so much what you also eliminate from your life. You understand that? A lot of people want to serve God, but they just want to put God on top of their already very busy lives and just sort of see if God can fit in. <laughs> God don't want to just fit in. He wants to be the Lord of our lives. But for God to fill us, we want to be filled with the Spirit. We want to be filled with His favor. We want to be filled with His blessing. To get to that, you have to empty yourself out. I just returned in last night from uh, uh, ministering uh, several times at the uh, Shepherd's Camp in Louisiana. And uh, it's a camp that they have for pastors and ministers and leaders. And uh, it's, a great, it's, a, it's, it's a, a great venue because... They, uh, they, we were at a hotel up in the Shreveport area, northern part of Louisiana, and uh, we just had several uh, days and, and nights together, and we met uh, in that uh, convention center, and we just talked about ministry, and uh, we just talked about, you know, some of the things that you go through in ministry, and, and uh, one of the common themes that uh, we, we would talk about as we would share and as we would, you know, sit around the table and talk and just let people open up, one of the things that became a common denominator is that you do not get an anointing from God without going through times of hurt and pain in your life. People, you know, they look and they say, wow, you know, that person is anointed, they're used of God, and I'd like to have that. But you don't know what they went through to get to that point. Ladies and gentlemen, you're not blessed and anointed of God without going through some times that your own vessel had to be emptied out and you weren't sure what the next step was going to be. But when you emptied yourself of yourself, 
you gave God the capacity to fill you with his spirit and with his anointing. And what a great God we serve that allows us to be able to find that special place in him. We, uh, I was sharing with them when I was out there some of my experiences with Brother Benny DeMerchant down in the Amazon. And a lot of people saw the great revival in the Amazon, but they wonder how there could be such a tremendous revival. Well, there was a lot of sacrifice that went into that. Brother DeMerchant losing his 15-year-old son from bone cancer, his only son. Plane crashes that several uh, missionaries and nationals lost their lives in. You do not get to a place of revival without there being loss. And so when we look at this, what does it mean to go from being good to great? And in particular, what does it mean to have great power in our life? We understand power, but exactly what is great power? Well, sometimes what you don't find gives us a clue as to what we're actually looking for. In the study that they did in this good to great companies, they did not focus principally on what to do to become great, but they also put uh, equal or even more focus on what not to do or what to stop doing. And I do believe that that is a part of being a Christian is being a person that can eliminate things from your life. You have to eliminate things from your life to be able to do the right thing. The other day I was telling the church, uh, maybe it was a week or two ago, I was telling the church, I was having a conversation with my daughter, Sophia, and she said, where are you going, Dad? I said, I got to go to Brazil. Then after that, where are you going? Then I got to go to Louisiana. Then I come back, and then the kids, the boys in Jacksonville. So I was going through this, and she said, look at me, my seven-year-old daughter. And I said, yes, and I looked at her, and she said, look at me in the eyes. I looked at her, you know, real close, and she said, you've got to start saying no to some stuff. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, you know, comes great wisdom. I said, okay, if I could just get through this, then I'm free for a few weeks until we go to Haiti, you know. But uh, there, is, there is a principle there that I think is very important, and that is you can't say yes to some things until you say no to some other things. And uh, one of the things that they found in studying these companies that go from good to great is they found that technology change has virtually nothing to do with igniting a transformation from good to great. In other words, technology can accelerate a transformation, but technology cannot cause a transformation. I've heard pastors say, boy, you know, if we could have big screens and projectors, like you guys have, you know, down there in Palm Bay, we could be a great church too. No, there is no technology that will make a good church become a great church because the greatest church was the New Testament church and they didn't have any technology. <laughs> Amen. They can help the internet and God bless uh, all the people that work hard to allow this to, to go out into a lot of people's homes that can't come to church or they may be out of town. They're able to watch it by internet. That's great. There's, these are ways that we can try to accelerate disseminating the gospel. But they do not in and of themselves make a church a great church. And so this is just an example. And, and let me just go one step further. I, I believe there are different models that you can use um, to, to build a, uh, a great church. And uh, certainly we see it going on around us. But I do think there's only one way to build an apostolic church. And let me give you what those examples are real quick. First of all, 
I think you can build a performance-driven church, which is where your focus is on a professional packaged service that is one hour to the second, and it's well-scripted, and everyone knows their roles, and it's done in a very professional manner, and those are what you see oftentimes in our mega churches. They're almost like going and watching a, um, you know, a television show. That is a performance-driven church. Or you can have a personality-driven church, which is a church that is driven by highlighting the personality of the leader. And we have examples of that in our culture. Or you can build a program-driven church where everything is geared toward self-help seminars and multitudes of ministries. And you can, you can build a church based on programs, and we have examples of that. But I think the only way that you build an apostolic church, and certainly there are things that we can gather from all of that. I'm not saying that those are bad models. But I do think that the only way you can truly build an apostolic church is to have a power-driven model. And a power-driven model is where every time people come into the house of God, they can feel the power and the presence of God. Now, I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but I want to be able to feel the power and the presence of God. When we gather together in God's house, uh, there's no way you can manufacture the power and presence of God. It's either there or it's not there. But if it is, we are a highly favored people. And I want to just say this for what it's worth, and I'm going to come back and revisit this in just a few moments. If you do have the power of God, you've got to protect it. Okay, let me just put that out there for what it's worth so that you'll understand. We're going to come back and revisit that in more detail. If you do have that great power of God working in your life, you've got to protect it. You've got to protect it. All right, so if we have this power and we say, Lord, we want your power. We don't want just power. We want great power. You don't get great power without a great God working in the midst. You may be able to have power in terms of man's ability, but great power is something much more than just man's ability. It's God's favor. And to have these things, to have great favor, great blessing, great power, there are some things that you have to give up. The very first thing that you have to give up is taking credit for what God is doing. Oh, hallelujah. I say the first thing you've got to give up is taking credit for what God is doing. I remember last year when we were at the Madagascar General Conference, you know, some 12 to 13,000 people out there, and they're all worshiping God at one time, and I said, this must be what heaven's going to be like. And uh, my wife and children were with me, and, and the uh, man, it was an incredible time. And Jerry Richardson, who came here to our church a few weeks ago and spoke uh, as well, he was the missionary there for many, many years. And I was sitting next to him on the platform, and I was just amazed at the people's worship. And they, they'll pray over 2,000 people through the Holy Ghost in a period of four nights. And just their, their giving and their love for God, and just all of it together is just, it's an amazing thing. And I was sitting next to Brother uh, Jerry Richardson, and I said, Brother Richardson, you've done an amazing job training all of these people and, and leading them to this incredible revival. And uh, he kind of looked at me, nodded a little bit, and he said, well, he said, as long as God keeps getting the credit for it, he'll keep blessing it. But if man starts to take the credit for it, it'll stop in a heartbeat. Boy, I said, Brother Richardson, I hope I don't ever forget that. One of the things we've got to realize, if we want great power, the great power of God in our life, we're going to have to give up taking credit for it. 
we got to realize that every good gift cometh down from the Father of light. If it wasn't for the Lord, I wouldn't have the family I have. If it wasn't for God, I wouldn't have the health that I have. If it wasn't for God, I wouldn't be in this church this morning. If it wasn't for the goodness of God, I wouldn't drive the car, live in the house that I have. I wouldn't be able to stand before you. You ought to wake up every day and say, God, you've been so good to me. Everything that is good, I owe it to you. Oh, hallelujah. The United States Supreme Court has something that they call judicial restraint, where they restrain themselves from giving an opinion and accepting a case that comes before them. Some 99.9% .9 of the cases that are filed, the Supreme Court never even gives it an audience. In fact, they will only hear an issue if there's a federal question or if there's a conflict between two state Supreme Courts. And when you think about the, the United States Supreme Court, you'd understand they're a part of the judicial branch. Our government's made up of a tripartite system of the executive branch, legislative branch, and the judicial branch. Well, when our government was first set up, the judicial branch was the weakest of the three branches of government. In fact, those first Supreme Court justices that came about were circuit riders. They had to get on their horse and run around and, and go and visit all. Nobody wanted to be. A lot of people turned down being Supreme Court justices at the beginning. Because it was, without a doubt, the weakest of the three branches of government. In fact, I've had the honor to study under two Supreme Court justices, Scalia and Rehnquist, who have both now passed away. But in studying under these Supreme Court justices, I think it's fair to say that everybody believes now that the judicial branch is the most powerful branch of government because of something that's called the Supremacy Clause, which is where, a long time ago, John Marshall, who was a U.S. Supreme Court justice, said that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and it is the duty of the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution. He was very eloquent. He pinned that and none of the other branches of government disputed it. And with that one single stroke of pen, the Supreme Court and the judicial branch was on a trajectory to become the most powerful branch of government. Because they simply said, we will determine what is constitutional and what is not constitutional. So because of that, they can force their will through the interpretation of the Constitution. That's why the most important thing that a United States president does is appoint Supreme Court justices. And they have a lifetime tenure. You can't vote them out. Once they get in there, they can hang on till they're 90-something years old. And so the whole moral direction of a nation is followed by that. And we tried to say to the Supreme Court justices that they were more powerful, and they wouldn't buy into it. These guys, they wouldn't buy it. Scalia and Rehnquist, they said they're not. And then I remember Scalia, who was very eloquent and very charismatic personality, he said, the ones that you got to look out for is the legislative branch, which is Congress. He said, they control the guns and the butter. Guns and the butter. What he was saying is you want to declare war, that's the guns. You've got to go through Congress. Of course, nowadays, the executive branch has figured a way around a lot of that. But the butter is the money, and they control the money. So he said, well, we've just enjoyed the respect of the nation, but when it comes down to it, the judicial branch is really not all that powerful. But they say the amount of power that we have been able to accumulate over the years, they believe strongly, and I think that anybody that studies this believes, is because of judicial restraint. They 
are very particular about the issues that they give an opinion on. And because of that, because they say no to 99.9% of the cases that are filed, asking them to make a decision on. When they do speak, it has greater weight. Have you ever been around a person that has an opinion on everything? All of you are looking at each other's spouses. I'm not sure if that was a good thing or not. <laughs> if they got an opinion on everything, it sort of starts to lose its weight because you just know them as having an opinion. I, I serve on about eight different boards. And there are people on boards that always have a lot to say about a lot of things. And when they do, I've noticed that they don't have as much influence on the board because they talk a lot to begin with. But then you have people like my father who's um, on the uh, Florida District Board and uh, he listens most of the time. He doesn't have a lot to say. But he's kind of like E.F. Hutton. When he finally does speak, everybody listens. And I realize it's because he doesn't give his opinion on a whole bunch of other stuff. He's wise enough to know they can figure that out. But when it gets really tough and they're like, Bishop Myers, what do you think? And he gives his opinion, nobody refutes it. And ultimately, it usually carries the day in terms of what we should do as a district board. Now, the reason I say that is because I believe that that is a principle that if we want the great power of God working in our lives. And when we look at this New Testament church, we would all have to agree that they had great power. And the reason that they had great power is because they recognized how powerless they were without the power of God. Every day, you've got to recognize how little is in your control. If you can recognize how little is in your control, that allows God to take control. See, our flesh is always wanting to assert itself. I can handle this. I can take care of this. How many times have we ever found ourselves in a situation where there's some conflict that's going on and we assert ourselves? We're going, I'm going to call this person right now. I'm going to deal with this while I'm, I'm, while I'm feeling you know, passionate about it. And boy, I tell you what, we can mess up more situations. But if we just back up and say, you know what, before I do anything, I'm going to pray first. And you know what's amazing is when you do that, the Lord will just say, easy trigger. Just take it easy. I can take care of it. Put it in my hands. Now, folks, that's when you get great power. I'm not talking about just power. I'm talking about great power. Because here's what I want you to look at this morning. We are in possession of the power. The Bible says that we have a treasure in earthen vessels. We are in possession of great power but we do not produce the power. Now let me read a verse to you. Paul said some incredible things. If you look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. He's writing through and he's, he's talking about different things of, that he's gone through in the flesh. He talks about how he had a thorn in the flesh and he prayed for God to remove it. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient. Verse 9, we read that. Then he starts to say in the, in the latter part of verse 9, I'd rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ 
may rest upon me. There's a little secret right there. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. This seems like an oxymoron here. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then verse 10, I think he puts a little bit more meat on the bones by explaining a little further. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. What is Paul talking about? Paul saying, when I recognize that I can only do so much in my flesh, and it's very limited, but God is great and greatly to be praised. And if I will lean on him and not on my own abilities, I give God access to be able to do great things. Not things that I can do on my own, but things that only God can do. Why is that? Because ladies and gentlemen, every one of us that has received the Holy Ghost have received the power of God in our lives. But for that power of God to become great power, we have to allow the Lord to take control of the steering wheel. Paul talks about this a lot in Romans. He says, I'm trying to walk after the spirit and not after the flesh, but this flesh keeps asserting itself. I find in this law, he says in Romans 7, I find in this law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. He goes on to say, for the good that I would, I do not. In other words, I have good intentions, but the evil which I would not, that I do. In other words, there's this struggle, and there's a struggle in every one of us. If Paul, the great apostle, the writer of most of the New Testament, the apostle to the Gentiles, had these struggles, you and I are going to have similar struggles. There's going to be this great conflict. But just as John the Baptist said, we've got to decrease so that he will increase. And when we say, God, I recognize that you're the one that can bring a solution. You're the one that can save, and you are the only one. Hallelujah. I'm going to get out of the way and let you do your great work. That's when we have great power in our lives. Because we are containers of this miraculous thing. I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they said, you know, the problem that we have with you holding this Pentecostals is you think that what you do is equally as important as what God does in the salvation process. And I said, I, I think that you've misinterpreted. Because yes, we do believe in a holiness lifestyle. And yes, we do believe that there are biblical principles that we should follow. But we recognize that we have been given a treasure in earthen vessels. That the power of God comes in us. And that power of God and that presence of God, and if we want to go even further, if we want to talk about it in terms of salvation, the salvation process, we understand, is the regenerated work of Calvary. We understand that process. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are all things that God did. And salvation will never be based upon what we do as human beings. However, here's where I think modern Christianity misses. Just because the power of God, salvation, a treasure in earthen vessels, has been given to us, we are not exempt from the responsibility to protect that treasure. And what we try to do is to protect 
the treasure that God has given us. We try to build up these fences. We try to say, I'm going to refrain from going there. I'm going to refrain from saying that. I'm going to refrain from looking that way. Not because those things in and of themselves is going to bring salvation, but we are trying to protect what God has given us. And I think about a story I heard my grandfather who's gone on to be with the Lord. He told me a story uh, when he was up in his 80s before he passed, obviously. He said, you know, son, when I was, a, we were talking about sports or something. He was telling me how much he loved to play baseball when he was a boy. And he said, son, when I was a boy, he said, we got word that Babe Ruth was coming to the city I grew up in. I think it was up around Pensacola area and was going to play a baseball game. And uh, he said, you know, we didn't have the money to go and get a ticket to the ball game. But he said, uh, my, my buddies and I, we went and we tried to watch the game through a knot hole in the fence. And he said, we were, we were out around the back where the center field area was. And there was an old wooden fence. And we found knot holes. And he said, we would watch the game through the knot hole. Because we all wanted to see Babe Ruth get up to hit the ball. And he said, as we would stare through that, that fence, he said, we finally saw Babe Ruth get up, and he was swinging his bat around. We could tell because he was usually bigger than most of the other players. And um, he said he'd, you know, he was known as the Sultan of SWAT. You know, he hit 714 home runs. And he said he'd swing his bat around, and he said, boy, we got all excited. And he said the first pitch, wham, he hit that ball. And he said the knot I had wouldn't allow me to see. But he said when the, when the ball came off the bat, I knew it was a home run. So he said, I immediately backed away from the fence because I knew that ball was coming where I was at. And he said, I was determined I was going to get that baseball. And he said, I backed up as far as I could. And he said, I saw that ball coming over. And he said, I ran. And when that ball hit the ground, he said, I picked that ball up. And he said, I ran as fast as I could. He said, I knew I had a treasure. Oh, man, I got so excited hearing about it. I was thinking any minute he was going to pull a baseball out of the back of his closet somewhere. <laughs> Woo, a baseball hit by Babe Ruth. Are you kidding? Man, we can all retire. He said, son, I picked that ball up. He said, I started running as fast as I could. He said, I knew I had to get to the house. Because he said, I knew that those bigger boys would try to run me down. And if they did, they would take the ball from me. So he said, I wasn't very big, but I was fast. Boy, he said, I took off running. I could hear him running after me. Jack's got the ball. Jack's got the ball. And boy, he said, them little legs were just a running and just a pumping, just as quick as they could. I was, I was trying to get home. He said, I knew I had that treasure, and I was trying to get home. He said, before I could get to the house, he said, they ran me down. And he said, they took that ball from me. He said... I fought as hard as I could to try to keep that ball. But he said, I couldn't do it. There was too many of them. They were bigger than I was. And he said, they took Babe Ruth's baseball right out of my hand. I said, oh, great. <laughs> he said, son, this is the lesson that I learned. And I'll never forget it. He said, it's not enough to just be in possession of a treasure. You've got to protect the treasure. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, God's given us something better than a Babe Ruth baseball. He has given us a treasure in earthen vessel, but we got to protect that treasure. I say we've got to protect that treasure. 
Man has a, a, a crazy idea about what is power. Man thinks they're powerful if they uh, accumulate some political position or, or they get some amount of wealth. Or it's Sister Nars, the, uh, the lady down in Brazil that we were with a few weeks ago that runs the Bible school down there in Rio and pastors two churches. And I mean, it's the most horrible neighborhood. I mean, there's all kind of drug deals going on outside and guns and kids with AK-47s. And they're like, last week we drove out the gate and there was two kids with guns and they took our car. And I mean, this is where I'm going to be staying. And I mean... I'm in the middle of the night at 3 in the morning. I'm in this house. There's no locks on the door. I hear cars pulling up. I hear people getting I'm thinking, I never slept the whole time I was there because I didn't know at any moment I was going to be robbed or my life was going to be over. Sister Nars told me, she said, a few weeks ago, she said the two churches I pastored, and she, uh, her husband, Jeffrey Nars, was missionary. His father, Robert Nars, was missionary for many years. And she grew up in Brazil. She was married to our missionary now. Her husband's passed away, and she's continuing the work there. And she pastors two churches, runs that Bible school. She's an amazing lady, nearly 60 years old. And all of them drug lords all around there, they all respect her. They'll come in and protect her. They'll say, don't have a service tonight. There's a deal going down. And there's going to be all kinds of gunfire and probably people getting killed. So go ahead and cancel your service tonight. They all protect her. They all look after her. And uh, I'm thinking, I'm going to stay with her the whole time I'm here. They don't know who I am. And, uh, and she told me, she said, you know, a few weeks ago, she said I was painting. I was inside one of the churches there. I passed her. She said I was painting inside the church. And she said uh, this young man came in. And, and he said, I, I heard about you. And she said, what did you hear? He said, one of my buddies told me that they came over here to kill you one day. And they held the gun up. And, and right before they could pull the trigger, the angels came all around you. And one of them put its, its, its uh, wing out like that. And he said he just trembled and dropped the gun and ran out the door. And she said, well, I didn't know about the angels, but I do remember years ago that had happened. He said, well, one of my friends told me about that. And he said, I just wanted to come over and see you. And uh, she said, well, God's been good to us. He's protected us and all that. He said, well, did you hear about the, uh, the murder that took place recently? They had had a murder in that area where they had chopped up a body and cut the head off and buried it in all different places. And, and the police had found most of the body, but they hadn't found the head yet. And uh, she said, yeah, I, I did hear about that. It's so sad. She said, people that don't know God, they just, they don't understand that God can deliver them from all of that. He said, well, I'm, I'm the guy that did that. I'm the one that chopped up that body. Do you want to see where the head is? She said, no, I really don't want to see where the head is. She said, you know, the police will come and they'll ask and, you know, I'll have to tell them. And, and uh, he starts describing, he said, I, I don't know what gets into me. He starts telling her that he's killed three people and he... He was raised in church. He knows what it is to have the power and presence of God. But he said, you know, I got hanging out with the wrong kids. And, you know, he said, I ended, got, ended up with a gang and I had to kill somebody. And he said, whenever I killed the, my first individual, he said, I cut their heart out. And he said, I held their heart in my hand. And he said, it was such an incredible feeling. He said, it was so much power. I felt like a God to hold a human heart in my hand. That's how evil these people are, my friend. And she said, you, you, you really need the Lord because that's not what real power is. She said, you're held in captivity. He started crying. She started praying with him. And he said, they're going to come. He said, they're going to come looking for me. He said, because they've got another assignment of another. 
pit that I've got to go and do it. He said, I really don't want to do it. He said, I'm tired. I want to be right with God. He said, is it possible that I can just stay here in the church? And she said, yeah, you can stay here in the church. He said, okay, when they come, just tell them I'm not feeling well. So she let him go down the bottom of the church there and let him go down there and sleep. And sure enough, after a while, boom, 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 here comes all these cars and these people come out and they said, you know, hey, uh, we heard, you know, so-and-so came over here and she said, yeah, he's not feeling well. Can you come back tomorrow? And uh, they said, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. They left. And she said, I kept working with him. She said, I kept praying with this young man. And she said, I kept trying to tell him that real power is not what you think is power. Real power only comes from worshiping God. And she said, he spent all night in that church. And he said, she said, the next morning, she said, I was praying with him to receive the Holy Ghost. And he said, I really want it, but I just got to take care of a few things first. And about an hour or two after that, they came back looking for him, and he left with that group, no doubt going to commit another murder. My friend, this flesh on its own is in a cycle of self-destruction. There is only one power that changes people's lives supernaturally, and that is the power of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God working in us. Do you think that real power, the devil making somebody feel like a god by holding a human heart in their hand, do you really think that's what power is? I'm going to tell you what real power is. Real power is when society doesn't know what to do with a person, but God changes their desires and makes them a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's what real power is. Real power is when a person is addicted to alcohol and comes home and can't support their family and beats their wife because they're addicted to alcohol and society doesn't know what to do with them and families and our culture, but God's cleansing power, God's blood that was shed for every single person makes a new creature in Christ Jesus and all of a sudden now they become a worshiper of God. Think about Saul. Saul was an executioner of Christians. Saul got so excited getting permission, was on his, on his way to Damascus to get more permission, to kill more Christians. And the Lord struck him down. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? What do you think you're doing? Do you really think you're powerful? In one moment, God can take your life. Every breath that we breathe, Every second that we're still alive and conscious is a gift from God. We ought to spend those days, those moments, those breaths. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, giving praise to God and exalting Him. My friend, that's what real power is all about. That's what great power is all about. Power to praise God and to worship the Lord. Let me close with this. I believe there are three ways that we can protect this great power that God has put in every one of our lives. I believe the first way that we protect this power is by worshiping the Lord. There's examples of this. One of the things that worshiping the Lord does is it acknowledges, not just in the spirit world, but also in the natural world, it acknowledges when you praise God, it is acknowledging, and when you worship God, it's saying, I recognize that I'm not a God. And that it's not my will that is the most important thing to focus on. 
It acknowledges that we are dependent on the power of God. When you say, Lord, I worship you today. You, now, you may have a wounded spirit. You may have hurt in your life. There may be something that's going on in your home or on your job that's causing you great turmoil. But there's something about when you come to the house of God and you begin to say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That when you do that, you're acknowledging, you're divesting your own soul of its own feelings and its rights and its hurts and all the little things that we do that create so much congestion, if I can say it that way, spiritual congestion. And it causes us to have a free heart and a free spirit. And when I say, I will bless the Lord anyhow, it doesn't mean that, that you're not suffering. It doesn't mean that you're not going through something. But you're saying, I'm going to protect the treasure that God has given me by lifting up my voice and lifting up my hands. That's not just spiritual aerobics. We're not just going through some emotional motions. We're saying, God, I recognize that you have given us a treasure, and I want to protect that treasure. I don't want just power. I want great power. And the way I get great power is by worshiping a great God. Every time you lift your hands to worship him, every time you say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord, I'm going to magnify God, you're protecting the treasure. And people, you know, they, they come and, they, they don't understand. They, they don't know what your testimony is. It's so easy to judge a person not knowing what their testimony is. Brother Jerry Dean was telling me out in Louisiana that they just had their men's conference last week and had over 2,500 men there. And there was a fella down front that was running all around the aisles. And Brother Dean said he almost knocked me over a couple times. He said I was getting a little irritated by him. And he said the speaker knew him. I didn't know him, but he called him up. He said, I want so-and-so to come up. And I thought, oh boy, what's this going to be? You know, we got 2,500 men up. He called this guy up. He started giving this guy's testimony and sharing this guy's testimony and where he had come from. And his father was an alcoholic. His grandfather was an alcoholic. His great-grandfather was an alcoholic. All three of them had committed suicide. And he was an alcoholic. And he put the gun to his head to commit suicide. And just before he pulled the trigger, the Lord said, if you'll worship me, I'll save your life. He started worshiping God, and God saved his life. He said, you can't judge me until you know my testimony. Oh, my friend, somebody may not understand why we worship God the way we do. You may not understand why somebody magnifies God, but you don't know their testimony. You don't know where God brought them from. You don't know what God has done in their life. They're protected the treasure that God has given them. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. I hope we never allow the flesh to become so elevated in our lives that we're so sophisticated that we can't worship God that we can't preach with passion that we can't sing with anointing that we can't exalt God in all that we do in his house we live in a world where they want us to calm it down a little bit you guys need to just have church a little bit more calm no we're not going to do it we're going to protect the treasure. We didn't save ourselves. God saved us. He gave us great power. And I'm going to worship the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm going to give God. When you were out in the world, you gave the world everything you had. You didn't be out there on the dance floor boogieing all night long. And now you're in the house of God. You ought to give God as much as you gave the devil. Oh, hallelujah. When I think of his goodness 
and all he's done for me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The second way that we protect that treasure is by staying true to the Word of God. In fact, if you look, and I don't have time to go into this this morning, but if you look in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, the Bible said he was a keeper of the treasure of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. It says he was come to Jerusalem for to worship. That's how you keep the treasure. It said he was reading Isaiah, the prophet. He was reading the word of God. He was committed to the word of God. Let me tell you the second way you keep the treasure. You stay committed to the book. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. You don't buy into all this nonsense. People writing all these books now, God is dead, and the Bible's not really true, and blah, 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 blah. You know what those people are doing? They're giving away the treasure. I said they're giving away the treasure. You want to protect that great power? You got to stay committed to the Word of God. People come into this church and they say, we can tell there's a difference in this church. There's something different about it. There's a power and a presence of God that's here. We didn't manufacture that. You don't get that from professional singers. We're not professional speakers. You know what we are? We're people who understand that God's word is true, every bit of it from Genesis to Revelation, and we are passionate about the fact that God is the one that saved us, and his love for us is the common denominator that brings us all together. We believe everything in that Bible is true. It's not outdated. It's not out of style. It's still as true today as it was when it was written. If it's in the book, we believe it. We're going to follow it till the day we die. That's how you protect the treasure. The third thing that we see, you can stay. My time is gone. The third thing that we see is that he was led by the Spirit. We're going to be apostolic. We got to be led by the Spirit. We want the great power of God in our midst. We got to be led by the Spirit. The Holy Ghost has got to be something that leads us every day. We can't just come and have church and then leave it here. When we, we got to take it with us when we go. We got to have the Spirit lead us to say, you know what? You need to pray for that person. You need to be led by the Spirit. That person that's in the cubicle next to you on the job, you feel the Holy Ghost leading you, you ought to go over there and follow the leading of the Spirit. Come on, somebody. The Holy Ghost is telling you to teach a Bible study. You need to be led by the Spirit. The Holy Ghost is telling you to pray for somebody this morning at this altar. You need to be led by the Spirit. Because every time you allow the Spirit to lead you, you are protecting the treasure. That is the great power of God that is working in us. When the Spirit moves, we'll move with it. Oh, come on. Let's lift our hands right now. Let the Holy Ghost flow. In the name of Jesus. Oh, we bless the mighty name of the Lord.